Welcome to Farm and Fiddle, the podcast that celebrates and explores rural life for today and tomorrow. We are the oldest radio program on the planet that works on sustainability and talks about sustainable agriculture in particular. We air on KOPN 89.5 FM from Columbia, Missouri, and we're on the web at kopn.org. This podcast is from a radio program that aired October 14th, 2020. Thanks for listening. I'm Margot McMillan. I'm Josh Stevens. I'm Red Hartman. Welcome. Yeah, it's pretty good day to have a choice, yeah. Yes, this is uh, Farm and Fiddle 89.5 KOPN Columbia. Uh, I'm Rhett Hartman, and uh, we're going to go back in time a little bit, listen to some old, old KOPN shows, and uh, see what things were like back then when we think about farming and uh, small rural uh, economies, how to make a living, um, and what was happening on a global scale back in the 80s. Uh, Some things haven't changed much, so take a listen to that. This is from a uh, this first thing we'll listen to is from a radio show uh, that was uh, organized by an um, education center out in Virginia. Um, and they had some interviews from Studs Terkel, who was a guy uh, who just recorded people from all walks of life, including uh, rural farmers. So check out that one and, uh, and just, you know, it's like a little time machine. Um, then we'll play some music. Uh, some of the music is from an uh, album about Ozark traditional fiddlers. So um, there's some good ones there. And uh, the last little segment will be from a KOPN production about natural dyeing. So trying to learn about um, how to dye things, what chemicals do you use, what kind of uh, natural things you can find um, to dye wool and other natural fibers. So, you know, that might be a good winter project for some of y'all out there or maybe inspire you. But anyways, that's going to be the show. I hope you enjoy it, and uh, tune in next week for even more great farm and fiddling. Have a good one. Bye. They're family farmers from Virginia, Kentucky, and Tennessee talking about hard times. I'm Studs Terkel. saying what they have is good. It's costing them $30 billion. It's the most expensive farm program in the history of this country, and never ever have more farm banks and farmers themselves gone out of business. Equipment dealers, small towns, the basic stability of agriculture communities throughout this country are now bankrupt. And they say they don't understand parity. Well, it's the government's word, not the farmer's. The government invented it. They can understand that football players want parity with the baseball players, but they cannot understand that the American farmer 
wants parity with the American worker. It's not a profit. It's not a guaranteed profit. It's a minimum wage. It's a minimum wage for farmers. Our, our values in this country have just, just gone. They'll pay $3 million to watch Doug Flutie throw a football, but they won't pay $3 a bushel of corn to help a farmer stay afloat. But I, I don't think the farmers ought to be subsidized to the point that they are, and it wouldn't be necessary if we could sell our commodity in the marketplace. And why in the world would the Congress or the Senate want us to sell it for less than the cost to produce it? Why do they want us to do that? Hoover was elected president, Al Smith went right down in defeat. Majority voted for the high, high chief, but show me a farmer who's got me, who's got me, who's got me. Our understanding of what's happened to farm policy is that it's become farm policy for the companies that buy the stuff. They want to get it cheaply, of course. Uh, so low prices is really the centerpiece of it all. Hal Hamilton is a dairy farmer from Pleasureville, Kentucky. He's a leader of the Community Farm Alliance. The Alliance is a grassroots farm organization. The policy that we have now of, of subsidizing production, selling exports, really exporting crops for less than what it costs to produce them in this country in order to try to maintain or conquer more world market share, um, it only benefits the, the big grain companies. So the farmer gets very little anymore. And while the farm crisis has been intensifying since uh, 1981 or so, the companies that trade and process uh, what we produce have been doing extremely well. Cargill has gone, which is one of the five grain companies that controls the world's trade in grain, uh, reported in 1986 a 66% increase in earnings over 1985. Washington is the lawmaking place. The poor old farmer has not up to say grace. Seeing something done for the hips is grace. The poor old farmer's gonna lose his place, gonna lose his place, gonna lose his place. And I have truly seen that in my lifetime in the last 30 years, as to where every hook and crook in the book has been used to say we must be competitive with all of these third world and lesser developed nations. And in doing so, I have seen not only America's standard of living decrease, but I've seen my standard of living decrease. And as of today, it is no longer viable for me to continue expanding it's no longer even viable for me to even produce agriculture commodities. Because even owning my own land, providing my own financing, providing my own labor, my own management, my own storage, and my own experience into doing it, it is no way to make a profit. What farmer has to buy is too high yet. What he has to sell is too low to make a hit. Bust up your corporations and your trust. For if you don't, then the farmer's gonna bust. Yes, the farmer's gonna bust. Yes, the farmer's gonna bust. How can it benefit you to sell something for less than what it costs to produce it? And it, and it also hurts farmers in other countries because they're forced to compete with this artificially low price. And everybody is pushing their production as hard as they can, uh, producing crops on marginal land, causing enormous soil erosion, wind erosion, all to profit the grain company. Somewhere along the line, we lost sight of the New Deal. We lost sight of farm programs that brought us out of the Great Depression and gave the farmer a decent standard of living. Instead, we started guaranteeing profits to agribusiness. 
over the last 40 years, we've reduced the number of American farmers from 6 million to fewer than 2 million. Farmers are asking why. Why are they being punished for doing a good job? They were told to produce, and they produced. What happened to the American dream? I guess the emphasis was always on production, but especially since World War II, it really came on. Ron Cruz is with the Land Stewardship Project in Stillwater, Minnesota. And uh, that emphasis on production has been tremendously successful. In fact, it's been so successful, if there's one problem that most people are familiar with in American agriculture, it's overproduction. We've really figured out how to make the land produce a great deal. The question is, what are the costs of that production, the true costs? And the true costs of that production, if one is to figure that, you have to figure out what the environmental costs are and what the human costs are. On, on both of those levels, there is cause to call American agriculture a failure, or at least uh, an agriculture laden with severe problems. Brady Deaton is an agricultural economist at the Virginia Polytechnic Institute. One point I would emphasize is that the policies that the United States has had toward agriculture are what we could generally call cheap food policies. We've done everything possible to stimulate surplus production and to keep food prices as low as possible. The, the problem with cheap food policies is it can easily lead to soil erosion and destruction of the environment and, and too much agricultural production. We've basically been exporting the soil of the United States abroad and when we're doing that, we're definitely then hurting the other countries because we, we are then driving down food prices below what the resource balance would lead those prices to be. I'm not sure I can give you the exact figure, but uh, something in the range of 40% of all of our farm production now flows into international trade. And of course, the United States dominates world trade what we do in terms of uh, agricultural policies toward grains, toward dairy products, uh, and beef and processed meat affect uh, a major part of the world market. What we do determines prices in the world market to a very great extent. And there's no way that we can consider issues of uh, rural development or agricultural policy in this country without realizing that we're talking about international repercussions of those policies. Francis Moore Lappe is with the Institute for Food and Development Policy in San Francisco, California. She's the author of Diet for a Small Planet. I think that American farmers should start with the assumption that what we need to be producing is that which our soils and water can withstand without robbing, without mining our resources, and that should be our guide, not maximum production for export, but what is consistent with sustainable agriculture here, and that farmer survival not hinge on export markets, because that uh, is such a fickle and unrealistic option. You don't take much, but you gotta have some. The old ways help, the new ways come. Leave a little extra for the next in line. They're gonna need a little water in the 70s, the, uh, the prices of grains took off like we'd never seen before. And this was a period in the mid-70s of $3, $3 and a half corn, $9 soybeans, $5 wheat, $3 barley, so forth. And with worldwide shortages of green, the grains that happened to coincide, you know, with Russian crop failures and so forth, we had a strong demand. And a, a lot of that was going to the export market.
Brady Deep. At that time, there was almost no government subsidy going to the agricultural sector. But events turned around, and we're still in the, in the throes of that turnaround. Since about 1976-78, we have just been producing massive food surpluses worldwide. And we are carrying today a food surplus that is unparalleled in, in history. Uh, we're carrying more than an entire year's worth, year's consumption of grain uh, in the, here in the United States. And other surplus producing countries are doing the same thing. A lot of jungle has been cleared in South America and Brazil and, and Pampas and Argentina plowed up and put into production corn, soybeans, wheat, which now competes with us. And the potential is there for Brazil to clear and plant more land than is currently under cultivation in the United States now. And it's cheap. Land's cheap, labor's cheap, and Brazil needs export from, they have, know how a whole lot to export grain is one thing, they need the export currency to service their debt. To the World Bank. The world. So they're willing to sell, you know, whatever they can get, whatever the traffic will bear, and that hurts our prices. They have borrowed so much money from the World Banks, and the debt has to be serviced. It, you know, they have to repay their debt, at least the interest. The only way they can do that is to export their grains and the food that they grow. Their people can go hungry. The World Banks do not really care. As long as they get paid. As long as they get paid. So what they're doing, instead of feeding their hungry people, they're exporting all of this food, competing with us, in order to pay their debts to the World Banks. Well, a lot of these banks are American banks. Most of them are. Francis Moore Lappe. The result is, is that these countries are having to increase their agricultural exports at the cost of greater hunger internally. And they're directly, yes, they're directly competing with U.S. farmers. But, you have, but the finger should be pointed not at the, the poor people who are producing these exports, but they, the finger should be pointing at the U.S. financial institutions that made these faulty loans to begin with and have benefited tremendously. If you only look and see, I know you will agree that the taxes on the farmer pay them all. Farmer is a man, farmer is a man, I'll only credit on the farm. When they take him by the hand, then they lead him to the land, then the merchant is a man against it all. It's not only big banks investing in these other countries, but the, the agricultural exporting companies are extraordinarily powerful and they need a lot of bushels of stuff traveling around in order to make money because they get a cut on each bushel. Hal Hamilton. And Frank, I don't think, Cargill is based in Minnesota, but I don't think they really care whether they're moving Argentine wheat or Kansas wheat. I mean, it really could matter less to them. What they care is that they move the greatest number of bushels of wheat around the world. And, and the cheaper it is, the more you can move around. The more expensive it is, the more likely it is that each country is going to be able to afford to grow its own. And therefore, Cargill will be moving less and will not make as much profit. So we're arguing really that a, a policy of managed production and higher basic raw material prices, it doesn't necessarily mean higher food prices because there's such a small amount of basic grain in, in our food, but higher basic raw material prices, it would hurt the big grain companies. There's no question about that in the processors. Kellogg and, and Cargill would have to pay more for what they buy. And that's why we can't, that's why we haven't been successful in Washington, because they're very powerful in Washington. But it would help 
farmers, rural communities in this country, and it would also have a profound effect on the ability of third world countries to pay off their debt, the ability of those countries to invest in agriculture, uh, and the ability of those countries to raise enough food to feed themselves. Oh, the farmer comes to town, his wagon broken down, the farmer is the man that feeds us all. If you'll only look and see, I'm sure you will agree that the farmer is the man that feeds us all. The farmer is the man, the farmer is the man, lives on credit till the fall. And then they take him by the hand, and they lead him from the land, and the middleman is the one that gets it all. Well, I think that farmers would have to put themselves in the shoes of other people. We know what it feels like to be in lines at the gas station waiting for uh, gasoline <laughs> during the oil crisis when we had a hard time getting the oil that our economy depended on. And many of us have cried for greater energy independence because we feel so vulnerable being dependent on foreign imported oil. Can you imagine how much more vulnerable we would feel, how much less sovereign we would feel as a people if we also had to be dependent on imported food. Now this doesn't mean that we are against food trade, it doesn't mean that we think that there's no place for agricultural trade, but we are saying that most people want to be food self-reliant so that they can avoid famine through their own production rather than through relying on imports from other countries. What we also are saying is that in virtually every country in the world today, there is the physical capacity for people to be able to grow food to feed themselves. Why are small farmers going out of business? We're talking to farmers and to others who say poor management is not the problem. That our farm policy not only hurts people in our country, but it hurts small farmers around the world. That farmers must turn from the world market to local markets if they hope to survive. I have a friend that's in the farming business close by up in Augusta County, and he is a, the type of farmer, but the only type of farmer that really can survive. First, he loves farming. He loves it, and he loves to work hard. That's first, number one. And he had real estate given to him, so that's number two. And number three is then he, he puts out uh, barley, and he puts out corn, he has cattle, he makes hay, and uh, he's got to raise some turkeys. And so if he doesn't get it on his popcorn, he get it on his Cracker Jacks. Now the farmers in the Midwest, they had it all in the Cracker Jacks, all in one basket. And if the corn price is bad, it was bad. Or they had it all in, in wheat. And if it was bad, it was bad. If you've ever been, you've been Midwest, and when you go out there, sometimes you could drive 20 miles without seeing another home. Well, you wouldn't have many customers along the road to buy some vegetables if you was out there trying to sell vegetables and start a vegetable garden, would you? You know, my daddy used to sing to me, the farmer is the man a-riding on his lap as he plowed up the land. No clock to punch, no boss to rule, he's the king of the country, nobody's fool. Whether it's a straw boss, rain or shine, you get the wrong damn thing at the wrong damn time. Just to working like the devil to beat out the frost. Down go the prices and up go the cost. Well, if the creek don't rise and the drought don't come and the tracker hold together till the work gets done. If we don't get sick and the hopper stay gone. 
bread and soil, the manure and the fertilizer, cream and the oil. I hear how the farmer was a man and the king, but to a girl of twelve, that don't mean a thing. own view is that small farms will benefit a lot from a more rural development kind of policy. Brady Deaton. And when you get, uh, you know, pop population spread across the landscape or the geography of the United States in a little more healthy fashion, you've got different demand for different types of specialty crops and you can actually grow vegetables in a variety of places across the country and market it locally. You basically can't do that in most parts of the United States today because there's not a population base there to demand it. So we've become overly specialized in certain lines of production. And, and that's due to the sort of what I'd call narrow corporate model that we've followed in agricultural policy. Marty Strange is an economist with the Center for Rural Affairs in Walt Hill, Nebraska. There have to be efforts to shorten the distance from the farmer to the consumer, to strengthen local marketing systems so that farmers will be spending a good deal more of their time engaged in marketing their product and, and, and adding value to it by delivering it and by, uh, in some cases, processing it and getting fresh foods directly to people. This is, this is a nutritional policy as well as a land policy as well as a beginning farmer policy. You can do that in parts of the country where you've got a sufficient population base and an adequate um, climate and soil types to, to support diversity of that sort and to, and to get uh, the kind of farming systems established that will people. You can't do that everywhere. And in the Mid-South area, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, Carolinas, I think we're talking about uh, a number of major urban areas in those states where the farmer could be linked more specifically uh, to that urban population. And in those cases, I think there's a great deal of room for agricultural diversification to produce the mix of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables, particularly in horticultural crops, that that urban population demands. And it's amazing that in those states, uh, massive amounts of the food consumed still comes from all over the United States, and particularly California. Now, some of that may always be there because there's comparative advantages in soil conditions and climate in parts of the world, uh, parts of the United States that are not in other parts. Yet, there's no question of what we could do a great deal to promote diversification and uh, various types of food crops that would be appealing to consumers in these centers, even the small towns. We've had cheap food, and now we're paying the price. I'm Studs Terkel. We've been listening to economists and environmentalists tell us how we've exported not only our grain, but our topsoil as well. We've heard how the small farmer is a victim of the export market that large grain companies control. If we have the good sense to stop exporting our topsoil, what are we going to do with all this land we've got plowed up? Is there a future for our small-scale farmer? That's where I see hope in American agriculture, is a growing recognition among practical farmers that things have got to change and that they're willing to 
participate in shaping that change. We see it in people who are changing their farming practices. We see it in people who are becoming more involved in farm politics, and as they become more involved in farm politics, are changing their, their definition of self-interest. They're, they're looking beyond some of the short-sighted, immediate self-interest that they used to look at, like tax subsidies for themselves, and thinking about the damage that those things do to their long-run future. There needs to be, I think, a, a policy at the federal level that does a better job of controlling production by requiring stricter environmental standards be placed on farming practices. I don't think that, that we need to tolerate the kind of abuse of soil that's taken place, particularly since the big boom period in the 70s when everybody thought they could plow up virgin prairie and grow corn on it and make money. We've got to stop doing that. If we stop doing that, if we put stricter environmental controls on agriculture, there will be, frankly, less output, and the result will be higher prices, and that'll help beginning farmers as well as established farmers. I think there's a whole host of things that can be done, but the question really is not, is not only what are the tools, but the real question is whether that's what this society wants. produced by Maxine Kinney of the Clinch River Educational Center. The music of the show was Busted, performed by Hazel Dickens. The Farmer is the Man, performed by Fiddlin' John Carson and Moonshine Kate. Farm Relief, performed by Uncle Dave Macon. Water from Another Time and The Farmer is the Woman, performed by John McCutcheon. Funding for this four-part series was provided by the Virginia Foundation for the Humanities and Public Policy, the Virginia Environmental Endowment, the Kentucky Humanities Council, 
and the Center for Appalachian Studies and Services at East Tennessee State University. The views and opinions expressed in this program do not necessarily reflect the views of any of the funding agencies. For a complete transcript, a cassette copy of this show, or for additional information, you may write to the Clinch River Educational Center, Route 2, Box 471, Nicholsville, Virginia, 24271. Again, the Clinch River Educational Center, Route 2, Box 471, Nicholsville, Virginia, 24271. Now, Lord, I'm no thief, but I can go wrong, I'm so busted. Food that we can't wait, summer's gone, I'm busted. The fields are all bare, cotton wool grows, me and my family's got a pack. A lot oh. of tunes is called by the name of the person they learn oh, them from. Yeah. Oh, That's yeah. what I call it, Sam Moore Waltz. That's fine. That's fine.
Do you remember what movie? No, I don't. I had a big slum fight, and and uh, they was playing that, that tune, and when they got to fighting and opening the door, that music just floated in there as clear, and then somebody shut the door, and you just barely hear it. It really sounded good. Yeah. They made it sound pretty lonesome right there on that long note. My name is Barbara and Jane's here with me and we're going to talk to you today about natural dyeing. We've been doing natural dyeing for about a year and a half now and we don't consider ourselves experts at all because we're still experimenting but everywhere we go where we take our yarns people always want to know how we do it so we thought we'd give you as much information as we have accumulated through our experiences. Natural dyeing is a process of getting dye from vegetables and plants as opposed to using chemicals to get various colors. Today we're going to talk about dyeing with wool. Now we've only used wool that's from the store, but you can use uh, wool that's still in the fleece form or wool that has been hand spun. You have to use 100% wool. Blends of synthetics just won't take the dye. You won't get good results. First off, I'm going to go through the supplies. First, you'll need a big pan, one that can hold one to two gallons, and it should be enamel. You cannot, well, you don't get very good results when you use aluminum or any other metal because it reacts with the dyeing and you get kind of funny colors. You need something to stir the yarn with once it's in the dye bath. A glass rod or a wooden stick is good, but once again, you shouldn't use anything that's metal. You'll need some measuring cups and measuring spoons and one and a half to two yards of muslin or cheesecloth for straining. Uh, some people like to use rubber gloves and a thermometer, but we don't use them, and that's just up to the individual. You need a tub to rinse out the yarn. We use just a sink and tap water, and you'll need a drying rack some, or, or something to dry the yarn on once it's been dyed. 
uh, one thing that we find real handy is to have some cards after you've dyed the yarn. You want to keep track of the colors that you got, what dye stuff you used, and what Morton. And this is just for future use. Most vegetable dyes need some sort of chemical assistance to be permanent. Otherwise, they fade or they take up little dye or they bleed. And in order to prevent this from happening, when you're dyeing, you use chemicals called Mortons, which fast the color to the yarn. And there's three times that you can use um, a Mortont. You can either do it before the dye bath, during the dye bath, or after the dye bath. And mostly what we've done is um, to use a Morton during the dye bath, so that's what we'll talk about when we talk about um, dyeing the yarn. But there's four primary um, Mortons that I'd like to tell you about. And the first one is alum, and this is not the pickling kind that you get in the grocery store, but it's potassium aluminum sulfate, and it's usually used with cream of tartar, the kind that you do get in the grocery store, in um, a ratio of four to one, the alum to the cream of tartar for one pound of wool. And another um, Morton is chrome or potassium dichromate, and with this you use about two teaspoons per pound of wool. And when you're using chrome, you should always use a lid on the pan because it's very sensitive to light. The third um, Morton is iron or ferrous sulfate, and with this you use about two teaspoons per pound of wool at the maximum. And um, ferrous sulfate is added to the dye bath after the wool has taken the color of the dye. And the fourth Morton is um, tin or stannous chloride. And with this, you would probably use less than you would of the iron. And you have to be really careful that you don't add too much because it tends to make the wool really brittle. Um, it's, it's, um, it has that property of doing that. Whenever you're using any of the chemicals, you should always you know, be really careful not to get it on your hands or to breathe too much of the fumes in because most of them, except for like the alum, um, are really poisonous and can be harmful to you. And one thing that's really nice about the Mortons, and which is really nice when you're dying, because you don't always know the specific color that you're going to come out with, is that different Mortons used on the same dye stuff produce different colors. So um, if you're dying with like onion skins, and you use different Mortons, you can get colors of yellow or brown or orange. And when the actual dye process starts. It's recommended that the wool be washed in mild soapy water before dyeing. We've never done this though. We have never washed it. And the first thing that we do is to um, wrap into oval skeins around the back of a chair the wool. And then we tie the um, skeins in two spots on the ends into loose figure eights. And that's so that, well, it's in the dye bath. Um, the dye can get to all parts of it, but it still stays in the skein so it doesn't get all tangled up. And after the yarn is tied into the skeins, then you soak it in clear water for approximately an hour. Now, at this point, you have the choice of either mortening the yarn before you put it into the dye bath, or you can morten it, the wool, when it's in the dye bath. Now, to morten the, the wool before it goes into the dye bath, you take your large pan and put it full of water. This is clear tap water. And uh, you should be using a recipe and they'll tell you, say, a teaspoon of chrome or two teaspoons of chrome. You put the chrome right into the water and slowly bring the whole mixture to a simmer. 
just or just a, a little bit below a simmer. Now, if you don't have a thermometer, like we don't use one, you'll just see the steam coming off of the water. And then you put the wool, uh, which has been wetted, into the, the water with the chemicals in it and let it sit in there just a little below steaming or below simmering for about an hour. <clears throat> and then you um, bring it out and you once again have the option of putting it right into the dye bath or you can put it, set it out to dry and then it's recommended that you use this mortened wool uh, in, within a few days. Um, you could wait up to a week or so but just don't don't let it be months or something like that. Now at this point I'm going to tell you what I meant by dye bath. Um, once again you have this big pot that holds two to three gallons of water and I'll give the example of onion skins. You take the onion skins, which is just the outside part, the yellow part, and you just cram them into the pan, get as many in as you can, and then start adding water. And put it on the, the burners and start heating it up. Now as the, the water starts getting hot, these onion skins will get real flimsy and collapse and everything. You can put in, keep putting in more and more onion skins. And the purpose for this is you get a really nice dark color with the more onion skins, or if you're using berries, the more you get in there, the nicer the color is. It's really dark. Well, you, you reach a point where you can't put any more onion skins in. And so you, keep, you boil this down. And usually we boil it for about 45 minutes to an hour. Now, like I said, with onion skins, you can see that the color is coming out, and so uh, after 45 minutes to an hour, you can tell, like, well, maybe 15 or 20 more minutes, all the dye will be out, all the color will be out of the skins, or maybe just in 15 minutes, or in 45 minutes, all the color is out. You just have to pretty much use your own judgment. But when you can tell that the color is into the water, that the water will be a goldish or whatever you're using, it'll be that color. That's the time you turn the heat off, and you get the muslin or the cheesecloth and pour the dye through this cheesecloth. Now you can use a big gallon container or just some a big pan, something to catch the dye as it come, goes through the cloth. Now this purpose is, the reason for this is just to um, get the onion skins out or whatever you're using just so you get pure um, this dyed water is what it is. And this is when we add the mortant. Now, uh, I suggest that you get a book or talk to somebody that has used, um, was familiar with what quantities of Morton to use. Usually you'll use, use a, a tablespoon or a couple teaspoons, something that you put it into this, it's just the water with the dye in it, and stir it around just a little bit, put it back on the heat, and then you enter the wool. Now, the wool should be uh, it should be completely submerged in the the dye bath, and depending on what mortons you use, like the ones that are sensitive to light, you should put a lid on, and uh, like I said, stir occasionally, but try to stir like with an up and down motion so that the yarn won't get streaked. Uh, you can leave it in this dye bath for about an hour. Or, like I said before, if you have a recipe, you should be uh, whatever it says, if it go by it. Uh, <clears throat> now, the wool will be taking on a color, and you have to consider that when it's in the dye bath, it's a whole lot darker than when it's taken out and it's dried. But we'll say that 
it's already got the color in and it's ready to be taken out and you gently lift it out of the dye bath and what we do is take put it into the um, sink and we'll have hot running water going hot as our hands can stand it and we'll just run this over the wool and slowly changing the temperature so it goes from hot to cold just gradually and just sort of like kneading the yarn or gently squeezing it to get any excess out. Now after the water's running and, and when it starts running clear and there's no more color coming out of the wool then that's when you stop the water, the rinse water, and just gently squeeze the wool and hang it up to dry. Now you can hang it in a dark place to dry or well this is just my personal opinion I like to have it sit in the sun so if it's going to fade it fades right then you don't have to mess with it fading after you've already made it up into something now this is the part where the dye over comes in now we like to think that you get really pretty colors every time but you don't sometimes you get really ugly ones and you don't want to keep them and it's not a waste of yarn by any means you just simply go through the same process except instead of having nice white wool you have maybe an ugly gray or brown and um, you just you can you have to take into consideration that if you want a light yellow and you have an ugly gray you aren't going to be able to get a light yellow or lighter color than your your original you're not going to be able to get a light color if you start over, start to dye over a gray, but you can come out with some pretty colors. Dye overs aren't losers. Some of the things that we've dyed with are um, onion skins, and onion skins are just really nice to dye with because they're not that hard to come by. You can get them any time of the year, even though it does take a lot to dye with. And uh, depending on which Morton you use, you can get a very beautiful soft yellow or you can get a very brilliant orange or a real nice dark brown. We've also dyed with catawba leaves and if you're not familiar with the catawba tree it's it's the one that has the long um, cigar. Yeah, cigar things <laughs> hanging down from it and we got a real nice green from those and we dyed with pokeberries and from pokeberries you can get reds and pinks that are real pretty. Um, we got a lot of variegated ones and um, they're really beautiful and we used elderberries and from elderberries you can get um, blue or purple depending on the Morton that you use and we dyed with um, marigolds and you can get a dark yellow from that and sumac which grows all around Colombia and which is really easy to find is really versatile depending on the Morton you can get a brown or a gray or a yellow color and one of the things I think that's really neat to realize is that you can use almost anything to dye with um, you can use walnut hulls or goldenrod or blackberries or bark from trees. But I think the best thing to do is to get a really good dye book that has different recipes in it and recommendations and to dye from that. It's really hard to um, explain to you how to dye, you know. It would be better if you were watching somebody do it. So if you do get a book and if you can have somebody there with you, you know, just dyeing, it makes it a whole bunch easier. And it's just marvelous to just see it happen. Or one thing you can do would be to buy a skein of yarn and um, instead of starting off with a gallon or two gallons, just dye in a small quantity like in a saucepan and then you can cut up your skein of yarn into um, 
I don't know, a few yards or something like that, and just do little random samples yourself. Um, if you haven't got someone to be with you, like Barbara said, a book is just really great, and you can do it by yourself. You don't have to, it's not a really hard process. And usually you can come by, um, if nothing else, yellows and browns are real easy to get. Yeah, um, a real nice book that I have is the, the Complete Illustrated Book of Dyes from Natural Sources by Arnold and Connie Crocmal. That's K-R-O-C-H-M-A-L. Or I have another one called Dye Plants and Dying, a handbook, and it's from the Brooklyn Botanic Garden Record of uh, Plants and Gardens. And I'm really sorry that we couldn't do this live so that you could call up and ask questions, but I'm going to be out of town. So um, if you do have any questions, I guess that you can just go ahead and call the station, and um, the woman who is doing the shift now might be able to answer them. Or if not, uh, I do a shift on Thursday nights, and if you can wait that long, you could call up you know, between 7 and 9, and I try and answer any questions that you might have. That was some really, really cool uh, old-time old, uh, music and some old-time uh, radio programming. That was uh, some KOPN reel-to-reel -reel archives from way back in the day teaching us about natural dyeing. Uh, before that, we listened to some music from Howie Teague. And uh, before that, it was uh, music from, oh, geez, uh, Violet Hensley. Uh, that, that's some good, good music. Um, uh, but anyways, thank you for listening to KOPN. And uh, we'll be back uh, next week with even more interesting stuff about farming and fiddling, rural life, and everything in between. Have a great evening. 89.5 KOPN Columbia. Learn that from my dad. <coughs> he, he played it this way.